On today's show, we're gonna talk about the customer experience and why it's so important for your business. Welcome to Cracking the Code, the show that helps you overcome the challenges you face every day in contracting and keeps you on the cutting edge of emerging trends and best practices. Now, before we get into today's comment, I want to throw something out for all of you folks out there who are not EGIA members. If you're enjoying the content that this show provides, I'm going to encourage you to check out the full courses by joining the platform for 30 days free of charge. Click the Join button at the top right of the screen, then select the Plus Membership. We'll give you access to the full courses so you can start to take your business to the next level. Now, we all know how important customer service is, and to get us kick-started today, I want to share some information with you from the one and only Mark Madison. He's going to talk to us today about under-promising and over-delivering. It's an acronym. I call it UPOD, right? It's, it's really simple. So, and I'll give you an example. I was working with a contractor in Southern California, and after we got done training his guys, we went to uh, Morton Steakhouse. And I was really, really hungry. My blood sugar was down around my ankles. And they said, Mr. Madison, it's going to be 45 minutes before we can find you a seat. We're really sorry. We're really busy. I said, okay, fine. Well, within five minutes, they bring over some filet mignon baguettes. They were little steak sandwiches. And I had like five or six of those. And I was like, and all of a sudden now my blood sugar didn't matter. I didn't care how long the wait was going to be. But then 15 minutes later, a total of 19 minutes, they said, Mr. Madison, your, your table's ready. And as we were sitting down, it dawned on me. They lied to me. But they didn't lie to me to ruin my day. They lied to me to create an expectation. Okay, so if you're a service coordinator slash dispatch and the customer says, well, how long is it going to take for a technician to come out here? You, you, you think about it for a minute. You think twice and you speak once and you say, you know, it's going to be about three or four hours before I can get a guy out there. I hope that's OK. We won't charge you overtime, but it's going to be that long. They said, fine. And he shows up in two. Now she or he's a hero and the technician looks good as well. See, that's the opposite of what a lot of contractors do. They'll say, oh, we'll be out there in an hour. And then three hours later, the guy shows up, and now the customer's unhappy. And the technician's stressed out. And guess what? If they'd have just taken the time to under-promise and over-deliver, think twice, speak once. Because what this is about is managing expectations. And that's why we get upset on that expectations. We have a certain understanding about what we can expect when we walk into a Starbucks or a FedEx, right? And I don't know about you, but when I walk into those places, I have really high expectations. A Ritz-Carlton, I have really high expectations. Why? They were created by that company. So we have to rethink the way we communicate with people to create those expectations. And under-promise, over-deliver. So, you know, we're always talking about customer service and the customer experience, but you got to ask yourself, you know, how exactly do I do that? What exactly do I do? What's the step-by-step -step process? Well, fortunately, we've got some great training today from none other than Gary Ellix. It's going to give us the three steps to creating a powerful customer experience. Now, I want you to understand that this is essential work. It's not something that's going to happen in you know, a day, a month, uh, it's work that you have to craft for your company. Now, a lot of that work may already be done. Uh, so you might be a great company and you already have a brand experience and a customer experience already down in writing and you know what your deliverables are. But I think from a customer service point of view, if, you're, if you haven't done that yet, you have to follow this progression in order to get organized. If, otherwise, you're just going to be doing shotgun approach. You're going to spend money on training and resources 
and it will temporarily change what's going on in your business. But if you want a long-term, long-lasting type of a process, this tool is what you want to do. So why do we need to do that? Well, let's take a look at what we need to be thinking about. So there's three basic reasons what an owner needs to be thinking about in customer service. The first thing is you need to expand in your own mindset what the definition of good customer service is. So what I think good customer service is at Walmart is get me through the line. What you think it might be uh, if you're somebody else, I mean, you might be fine with it. So your target customer base is the next issue. Who are your customers? Target marketing and target audience definition make a huge difference because not everybody's a Nordstrom customer. I mean, people go, I wouldn't go into a Nordstrom's and overpay. Those people don't, I mean, you're, it's ridiculous. You can buy those jeans over here for a lot less. That's true, you can. But you won't get them tailored. And you'll have to take them to a tailor. So the convenience issue isn't there. You can get them tailored. You're just going to have to do it in a different place. And so that's time and money. And then is the tailoring going to be right? So we don't know. Nordstrom's, it's going to be right. Because if it's not right, they're not going to get, they don't go forward. In other words, their philosophy is they're 100% committed to making sure that everything is happening. So the target customer, the target audience is very important. I moved my business out of downtown Columbus, Ohio back in the early 2000s, away from the geographic zone and the target location that we were in in order to be front and center with our target audience where we had identified discretionary income, housing profiles, people that were more likely to be educated, that were willing to spend more money on things like multi-speed equipment, variable speed equipment, modulating equipment, you know, the idea that they actually had discretionary income and the sales process that we used made more sense for them. So the idea that we did that was based on our customer service that we were trying to deliver. We we're trying to be a high-end company with great customer service. Well, we moved that business to where our customers are. The same holds true for your customer service paradigm. Um, I don't really care what you do in terms of your customer service. I just care that you create uh, alignment that you define it and you decide what it is. So there are plenty of businesses out there like Amazon or Zappos or you know, you've listened to the stories of, you know, with, uh, with Brigham. I mean, they're crazy about making sure that you're happy. Uh, Amazon Prime is a great example of that. I mean, if it comes out and it's delivered and it's not right, you send it back, we're done. I don't feel bad about that as a customer. I'd be like, well, they made a mistake, it was wrong, but they corrected it. So, those types of business models are what I'm asking you to define. So what your level of service is, who your customers are. And then the third one is you need to create a customer-friendly approach in your business. What does that mean? Well, I'm going to give you a very specific example. Years ago, my technicians were, they were all about the work. Like they knew how to fix pretty much anything and they were good at it. Um, but we were lacking in our ability to build relationships with customers. And we were selling service agreements, but we weren't selling them at the rate that our price point would have dictated, meaning that our service agreement price was low enough that the customer absorption rate, what we call uptake, should have been much higher. And uh, we, we thought it should be in the 70% range, and you know, we were running like 18 or 19%, which is below industry KPI, by the way. So you know, upon investigation on that, you know, we just started talking to customers. So one of our customers suggested, well, you should just get a whole bunch of your customers together and do a focus group. And they said, you know, Gary, you're a market research guy anyway, which I am. Uh, so let's do that. So that's what we did. So we paid a third-party firm. Um, 
it was relatively expensive in the day, but uh, we still use that data and that information even today. So we got a group together of uh, a bunch of ladies because that's our target audience. Uh, so you know, our target audience is about 95% gender specific to the female. Now that could be different in your marketplace, but that was our target market in that Columbus zone. And so we were able to bring all of our technicians in and sit behind a two-way mirror and the moderator asked questions to those people. And they, these are our customers now, people that we've done business with. And they ripped us to pieces. I mean, the moderator's asking questions like, well, how was your experience? You know, scale of one to 100. 57. Well, 57 isn't very good. You know, 85 really wouldn't be acceptable because we're talking about 90 being the number. So they tore us to shreds. I mean, we were, you know, dropping oil on driveways. We were parking in driveways. We were smudging, you know, walls with paint. We were putting in equipment and we weren't explaining it in layman's terms and we were talking technical. We were being, you know, arrogant in the sense that we were, we were talking over their heads. It was just everything that you could possibly imagine that you would just cringe and you could just see the technicians beginning to, you know, just sort of listen to these people. So it's not the owner of the business or the service manager saying, hey, you know, we need to be customer friendly. We've got to use terms, you know, like outdoor air conditioner instead of condensing unit. I mean, I can say that to a technician or to a salesperson, but they still have to deliver the behavior. And so if they don't believe that behavior intuitively, then it falls down. So what happened was we had the focus group and the technicians really just got, you know, an earful from all these ladies. And it was the best money that I've ever spent because the next day the technicians are like, well, we really suck, don't we? And the answer is, yeah, we do suck. We don't suck at the ability to fix the equipment, but we certainly suck at our ability to build a quality relationship. And our entire blueprint is to build a customer relationship. So we are completely disconnected with the very idea of what we're trying to accomplish as a purpose. And they went, well, what do we do? We said, well, the first thing you got to do as a technician is you got to start be willing to adjust. You got to be willing to change. We're going to train you. We're going to organize, but you have to accept the idea that you're going to have to adjust. And so that gets us into the customer-friendly discussion. So you got to figure out who you want to be. you got to know who your customers are, and you got to target those customers. And then you got to organize a business principle or a set of processes around that. So I'm going to conclude this video right here with the set of principles that said, if you have any questions whatsoever about this particular content, send me and ask the expert question and we will get that to the right individuals and we will respond back to you in kind. Now I want to talk about a few key takeaways from Gary's video because this is really important stuff. Number one, people will spend more money for better customer service and a better customer experience. Number two, we can get more for the job by offering a better experience. Number three, Team members have to be on the same page. Number four, your customer experience needs to be part of your marketing to attract the right people. Number five, when a customer gets amazing service, they will tell 10 to 12 people. And lastly, and most importantly, you gotta keep this in mind, when a customer gets bad service, they're gonna tell about 20 people. Now let's join Gary as he talks about how your brand is affected by your customer experience. And I'm going to teach you a little bit more about how to take the idea of a customer experience and the philosophies that we talked about in the beginning of video one, segment one, and break those down into some ideas where implementation actually begins occurring inside of your business. So it's one thing to sit uh, around a table and say, hey, we want to build a great customer service organization. We want to be the best you know, at the deliverable. 
And, you know, as a value structure, we want our customers to be satisfied. We want to be raving lunatics. We want them to go on social media, Yelp, City Search, Angie's List, uh, Google Plus, write great reviews about us, and just, uh, you know, post pictures of Instagram about how beautiful our installations are. So all of that, you know, might be a little comical. I mean, you might sit around and actually do that or not. But the reality is, is you can sit and talk about it, but then the execution side and the implementation side tends to get in the way inside of the contracting businesses. So I, I can't speak for you all, but I know in my own particular businesses, I have the difficulty of choosing what time I'm going to allocate to what project. So it's not a question of whether or not you want to do it. It's a question of what's in your way, what the static is of the day, what kind of things are getting in your way with your employees behaviorally. Um, we used to have a sign in one of our service companies that said, this is not an adult daycare center. Uh, you know, so, I mean, that was kind of the joke when you came into the training room and the conference room is like, hey, we're all adults and we're supposed to be able to actually learn and deliver. So I think the execution and the implementation of getting to the customer service side is really the challenge that most of us face. So if you go through video one and you break down some of those ideas, probably went, yep, I agree with that. I think that makes sense. But then we get down to the practical side of the equation and we ask, hmm, how do I actually do it, and what is, how's the time work? In other words, what am I going to give up in order to accomplish this? So I'd, I'd like to give you some statistics first, and then I'm going to take you over to the whiteboard, and I'm going to break down some of those basic ideas for implementation. And then as I come back into the studio, we'll finalize the discussions uh, in segment two so that we can crystallize for you, uh, both as an owner management team and if we have team members or associates watching this, technicians, maintenance technicians, customer service dispatchers, uh, getting everybody on the same page and working together as a team in alignment doesn't mean that you're going to sit around the campfire and sing kumbaya and everybody's going to have s'mores and love each other. That's just not necessarily what we're talking about. Not saying that's a bad idea because that's not necessarily a bad idea. But the idea we're discussing is we need to have a common theme and a common set of philosophies for how we're going to operate as a business. And so people understand inside of the team what that is and how it's supposed to work. And when that's occurring, even if we make a mistake, we understand that that, that happens, physical errors happen. But the, but the process itself is organized. And so you're going to win more often than not if you can set up those types of practices. So I'm going to give you some of those ideas. So first off, let's look at some stats. If you take a look at this slide, uh, this is just general research that's out there as to why you should turn your customer service and brand experience goggles on full power and just start staring at what you're doing and what your customers are saying you're doing and benchmarking that with what you think you're doing, uh, which sometimes are not the same thing. So the first issue is pretty much, you know, I hear this all the time when I do the pricing classes. You know, I got one truck Harry out there and he's just out there at $2,500 and you know, I'm at $7,000 and the customer just doesn't understand the difference. Well, that's a problem for sure, but it's not the exact problem that's being defined by that argument, meaning that the, if the guy doesn't know what he's doing and he's pricing it under cost, there's not a heck of a lot you can do anyway. You have to price for your own value proposition. But the second part of that equation goes like this. People are going to spend more money if they actually believe they're going to get better customer service. You would not have BMW, you would not have Lexus, you would not have Ferrari, you would not have Jaguar, you would not have Maserati, you would not have McLaren, you would not have Bugatti, you wouldn't have any of those things. You wouldn't have expensive houses. 
you would have nothing that was anything other than a granite structure or a concrete structure that you know you just lived in and everybody lived in the same place. We're a capitalist business planet here in the United States. I mean, that's what we do. What that means is there's competition, okay? So competition creates differences in value, meaning that, hey, I can sell a Ferrari for X amount of dollars because it has things on it and does things that these other vehicles don't. Somebody thought about that idea, they created that idea, they executed that idea. So 10% more doesn't seem like a lot, but you're not competing against that guy who is essentially you know, working out of his house who doesn't understand how to price. Nothing wrong with that guy. I like that guy. I hope he joins EGIA and figures out how to actually price. You should get him to join EGIA. The flip side of that is, is that there's a whole lot of companies out there that are not exceptional at their customer experience. And so if we can't translate that to the client, then the client doesn't really have any way to mechanize the uh, 10%. They can't, what we call, monetize it. So if I walk into an ice cream shop and I order some gelato and I order chocolate and they hand me vanilla, it's like, what planet are you on? I asked for chocolate. I pointed to it. And so you gave me vanilla. You weren't connecting the customer relationship. On the other hand, uh, and by the way, that makes me maybe not want to patronize them again which is one of the next bullets. If on the other hand, they give me the, you know, would you like to taste that chocolate? I've got two different chocolates. Let me give you a taste of each one and you can pick the one you like. Oh my, two chocolates, because I'm a chocolate kind of guy. So they give me the taste and I go, you know, that one's pretty good and oh my, that's the one, that's it. That's the chocolate I want. And they hand me that. I am willing to pay them more money because they treated me better then the, you know, the other experience, which is you didn't listen to me, I asked you for chocolate, and you end up giving me something that I didn't ask for. So it didn't cost really any money for that second uh, discussion to happen, but it was a cultural event that had to have some training attached to it. That team member or employee had to understand, hey, how do I execute that? I want the customer to have choice. I want the customer to be happy. I want the customer to get what they expected, and I want to deliver some exceptional value. So I'm willing to pay extra money for it because, man, it was good. It hit the palate. It was fantastic. So in HVAC, plumbing, electrical, roofing, painting, pest control, don't care what your business is, understanding that people will pay you more money if they believe there's a customer service deliverable there is important. So think about this. Your warranties, your guarantees, your brand promise, all the things that you market need to scream to the customer whatever your customer experience is going to be. So I'm a higher end business uh, from the standpoint of how we want to present ourselves. So we're going to advertise a lifetime parts and labor guarantee on service repairs. That screams that I've got no risk associated with your repairs. So if you're going to do business with me, you may have to pay me more money initially to be able to afford the service that we're going to deliver. But we're going to give you a warranty or guarantee that's going to back that. And so that's worth the 10%. So I'm using that as an example, but there are multitudes of examples, okay? Two year, no questions asked, money back guarantee. So everybody says that, but you know, is it really translation to the homeowner? So let's go to the slide. So the second area there then is when a customer actually really receives good experience, like it really happens well, they're gonna talk to people and they're gonna go on social media. And so they're gonna be between 10 and 12 people out there that are gonna essentially get a positive vibe, a positive message. 
The second part of that, though, unfortunately, is when somebody has a poor experience, when the deliverable doesn't match. I got vanilla instead of chocolate, and they didn't correct the problem. Well, when that happens, we're going to tell 20 people. So the bottom line is real simple. Better service keeps your customers and allows you to charge more for your service. And after all, better margins is what it's all about. Now, as you begin to truly understand the importance of great customer service, it's important to realize that the very first contact your customers have with your company is with your CSRs. So join me as we share some information from Brigham Dickinson about how important it is to make the right impression the first impression. It was in a boardroom just like this 15 years ago at a company called Arctic Air in Chico, California. I had just finished my marketing degree and Kevin Comerford, my district manager at the time, brought me into the boardroom and said, Brigham, how are you? I'm great and I've got all kinds of great marketing ideas for you. And he stopped me about mid-sentence and he said, show me Brigham. How do you answer the phones? You see, I answered the phones part-time at Artcare and did their marketing. And so I showed him, it was a lackluster attempt at best. Hey, thank you for calling Artcare, this is Brigham. And he said, really, that's how you answer the phones? And I said, well, if there was a real customer on the line, of course I'd answer it differently. And he said, Brigham, you're the first impression the customer has of the company, and the last if you mess it up. And he drills me on how to answer the phones with every objection under the sun. We wrote a script, we practiced, it was quite an experience. Next thing you know, he jumps up, begins to walk out the door, and he says, Brigham, I'm going to call you every other week. I'm going to be a different character every time you answer the phone, whether it be an old lady or a cowboy or what have you. It doesn't matter. I'll provide some feedback. We'll come back together, and we'll just keep going. From that day forward, I looked at call handling differently, answered the phones differently, because I realized their objective, their goal is to create a wild experience for their customers. They are the first impression. The customer has the company. The last if you screw it up, don't screw it up. So we understand customer service is very important, right? It keeps your customers. It lets you charge more for your goods and services. We know that CSRs are kind of the first contact and how important that is to make sure they're doing their job. Well, I also want to talk to you about the installers and making sure they're delivering powerful, amazing service on every install. Join me now, let's watch Gary Alex as he talks about how the installers should also be delivering this great customer experience. All right, so we're at the whiteboard. So here's essentially for the customer service side, what I'm gonna call the customer experience, some people call the brand experience. And what I wanna talk about is how to create that alignment process around the install team with the rest of the team members that support the overall execution on a day in and day out basis. So the first thing that we have is we've got number one, we've got a comfort advisor or a selling technician. You could substitute selling tech for the comfort advisor. And the comfort advisor is out there and they're going to do application work, they're going to take pictures, they're going to identify issues, they're going to do all the mapping of the customer relationship and they're going to basically make promises for the company. And we're going to transact, so we're going to sell something. We're not going to have an install unless somebody actually signs an investment agreement. And so the comfort advisor's job is to create the level of expectation that is the brand experience that the installation team will deliver. In other words, we actually want a document right here that has expectations. We actually have that document, and it's posted on the website under the sales process side, where we actually lay out for the homeowner, hey, here's what you should expect 
from our company. Here's what you should expect from our install team. Now, if we have that document and we've got stuff written down and we've promised that to a homeowner, we've created an expectation or a brand promise for the homeowner. Now what we have to do is we've got to be able to deliver on that, and that's really the rest of the chart. So if you lack this document, or uh, basically telling the homeowner what the brand promise is, there's going to be a lot of blah, 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 and the homeowner doesn't necessarily remember that. So one of the things I've learned over time is that people get disappointed when we set expectations and then we don't deliver on them. If there were no expectations and somebody delivered something to you, you'd be like, oh, hey, that was a win. Uh, and if there's no expectations and you didn't get any deliverable, you, would, you didn't care. So it's a little bit like the airlines setting up a time or setting a meeting time, and then somebody doesn't show up on time, the time was the creation of an expectation, and all of a sudden the deliverable isn't met, and you go, I can't believe that we didn't hit this time, or I can't believe the airplane is late again, or I can't believe they're not communicating with us. So that doesn't mean that the expectation has to be set perfectly each and every time. It means you need to be able to clarify for the homeowner what the install team is going to do and how it should go. The flow of the job, what they should expect, who's going to contact them, how it's going to go after the sale follow-up, whatever you have inside of your world. So I would urge you to download the expectations document that we have that we present for our comfort advisors. You know, once we have a transaction, we hand that to the homeowner and go, here's what you should expect. And uh, by the way, make sure that you work with us, you know, and uh, we're going to communicate with you. If things are going well, we'd love to know about it. We'd appreciate it if a review. And if things don't go well or something happens, you call me right away and we'll take care of it. So we're setting up clarity. Every single installer you have has to be trained on the social styles. So that's a customer service, customer experience, customer relationship training issue. If you have people that are interfacing directly with your homeowners, which Peter was or your install lead and maybe your helper will do, if you don't spend the time and energy to train your men on exactly how to interface with those customers, they're going to do whatever they do, which might be great or it might be average or it might be below average. So here you are with a promise maker and another promise maker and a promise keeper saying we're going to do things in a particular way and then the deliverable happens and it isn't necessarily connected, you're out of alignment. And I know this is a detailed conversation and it's probably one of those things that you say, well, I don't really need to train my guys on social styles because they're, they're good guys. Well, they are good guys. But the problem is, is not all homeowners are created equal. And I'm not going to tell you as a homeowner if I don't feel good about the relationship because basically I already bought from you and I need you to do the work. So it's a little bit like complaining to the chef about the food before your dinner gets served. You're probably not going to like what happens what, you know, when it comes out. So this is a good example right here of the installer and the opportunity to work with the homeowner. You can actually make the homeowner feel great about the decision. And what that promotes is that promotes customer experience, but it promotes reviews at the end. It promotes referrals. People are going to come down the neighborhood, which they did with my Pella window example, and they went, hey, Gary, I see you're putting in new windows and doors. Uh, who'd you go with? Of course, the Pella sign is you know, sitting out in the front yard because the Pella guy asked permission. And he put his job site sign up there. I went, hey, yeah, we decided to go with Pella. Oh, really? Um, why did you do that? Well, we went with a couple, three different estimates, and Pella had the architectural series, the aluminum. I didn't want to mess with the wood anymore. So I just put in the aluminum. I don't have to paint it. No more wood rot. I'm good. And they said, oh, yeah, you know, we're thinking about doing the same thing. We got some wood rot, too, and we don't really want to fix it. And so we've, we're looking in the same thing. So 
that's an opportunity for me as a homeowner to do what? To create a referral and say, well, these guys from Pella, they took good care of me. And I got to tell you, I mean, I'm pretty impressed with the way the job's gone so far. So the homeowners will check back with me later. And so I'll have an opinion as a homeowner about how the process went. My opinion of how the process went with Pella, by the way, was a 100 over a 100. They couldn't have done it any better from my point of view as a homeowner. That's a, a sterling endorsement. And I sold at least three jobs in my neighborhood for them in the fifty dollars to $60,000 range. Now, how much marketing money does it take to go get that job versus creating a customer that is a raging fan of that particular brand saying, this is an amazing product and they, did, they treated me well. The whole process went well. So then that leads us to number four, which is the job management side of this. So the installer has responsibilities for the job management as well. Now, it isn't just communication. We just talked about that with the homeowner with social styles. This is communication back with the lead coordination function that the job is going well, or maybe there's issues in the application that the comfort advisor may or may not have hit. So if we have issues, and we think that we're going to go beyond the scope of what we told the homeowner right here, we gave you expectations, but for some reason the comfort advisor missed that three-foot wall that I have to drill through that we've talked about in previous examples. The communication has to go to the homeowner that, hey, this may take a little bit longer. Are you OK? Is it OK if I stay and complete the job? So this is a great example in our company. All jobs are supposed to be completed same day. But what if the homeowner has things that they have to deal with? Maybe they don't want you there. So that facilitates a, oh, I got to come back tomorrow kind of thing. And the scheduling issue with homeowners is, is something that was set up right here, the lead coordination function and the comfort advisor. The installer didn't get to set the schedule. The installer is the promise keeper. So when we have a problem or we have a situation, this is where the lead installer owns the relationship to go back to the homeowner. And if you've built that relationship in the customer experience with the homeowner, you have a bridge that you can work with. And so that will help you. If you haven't done that, then you're going to have to figure out you know, how to build that bridge at simultaneously telling them that, well, we may be a little delayed. It's going to take a little longer than we thought. And it's not a problem that you're going to take longer. It's only a problem if you don't communicate it. And then the homeowner is up here stewing because I didn't know, I didn't prepare, I didn't plan. Maybe I got to pick up my kids. Maybe I have to go somewhere and, I, and I, I don't, you haven't finished the job, so I'm not, I'm not comfortable writing you a check and giving you the money before I leave. Who's going to lock up? I mean, there's a million things that can go wrong in the customer's mind. So the communication and the job management function is key. A second area here is the job start form, meaning that if I review the job at the installation level, and we talked about that in the previous video on job layout, job management, well, the job start form identifies for me right here and the lead coordination function and the comfort advisor that the estimate or the job wasn't necessarily planned and sketched and laid out correctly. So modifications can be made right here. And that is something that when we walk through with the homeowner initially on the installation setup, what we're doing with the job site, what Peter did with me with Pella, boom, this is the opportunity to talk to the homeowner right there about, well, we may be working until 6 or 7 o'clock noise constraints, um, you know, sleeping children. I mean, just the connection of what's going on on the job management function and the installer's ability to recognize that the customer experience is being influenced. If we, if we don't tell them exactly what's going to happen and it isn't matched up with the expectations here, then that's going to be a problem.
Well, that's our show for this week, folks. Just remember, customer service, it's serious business. Hope you enjoyed the show. We'll see you next week. Until then, bye-bye for now.